One of the things that is overwhelming the first time you become a parent is everything that is involved in the process. When we had our first child, I worked at Toys R Us as a manager, and when I had first started with the company four years prior, I was surprised to find out how much of the business of, the, of that store was baby stuff. Now, I'm not talking about baby toys here. I'm talking about all the stuff that you need when you have a newborn. All the things that are, that are necessary to get children from here to there and to feed them and, and keep them warm, all those things. It's more than diapers, right? You need an infant car seat. You also need a stroller that clips that infant car seat in so you can tote them around on a stroller. Then you need an extra base for that infant car seat because you have a second car, so you need that. You need bottles. You need pacifiers. You need onesies. And then once you're past the infant stage, you, you hope that the customers would come back to Toys R Us because they needed a larger car seat and perhaps a larger stroller, maybe a jogging stroller even. All this stuff that's connected with having a baby. So when we became parents... I personally had a good idea of what this all entailed. But the whole process is rather overwhelming. And I think several of our young parents here this morning are probably feeling exactly what I'm talking about. And this goes beyond the stuff that you have to buy and the things you need to learn, which includes coping with the loss of sleep, right? But you also have all the things you have to do with the baby. You have people you need to see. You have things that you need to do. There is so much that is involved in this whole process. Now, while we know that Mary and Joseph weren't worrying about how they could afford a second infant car seat for their second donkey, we know that their lives it would have involved all these things that needed to be done. In any age, the arrival of a baby is a life changing event. And we saw at the end of the passage that we looked at last week that Mary and Joseph were faithful. They were called to name the child Jesus as was commanded, and they had had, they had, had him circumcised on the eighth day, just as the rituals commanded them to do, just as the word commanded them to do. And now in this passage today, we're seeing that they have made their way to Jerusalem to present the child to the Lord. In the midst of all the things that need to be done, all the ways that their lives have changed, the parents of the Christ child are faithful. And throughout the story, we once again receive the confirmation of who this child is and what he is going to do for his people. So today, we're going to once again pull out the three points. And so let me line them out for you today. First thing that we're going to see is what I just mentioned. Mary and Joseph are faithful to do what is required of them. There's no doubt left whether or not Jesus is set apart for a specific purpose. As we've seen so many times in Scripture, all the rituals, all the things that are required of the people of the law, they ultimately point to Jesus. And we see here that when he arrives, he is a participant in those things as well. Secondly, we see Simeon and Anna witness to the identity of this child. We have seen the testimony of other people in Luke so far. 
The Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah proclaim what the child is doing, what this child is fulfilling. And we saw the angels testify to who he is when they came to the shepherds. And now we have others who witness to the identity of this baby. And finally, we see that Jesus grows and the favor of God is upon him. As we're reading, we're reminded that this isn't the ultimate purpose of the story. The work that this promised child is going to do has not simply been accomplished by his arrival. Jesus does not win victory over sin, death, hell, and the devil simply by being born. There's a continuing story. He does not conquer those things as a baby. He is to grow. And we see as we look at this that God's favor is upon him. So let's start out by looking at Luke 2, verses 20 through 22 through 24, as we look at point one and see that Mary and Joseph are faithful to fulfill what is required of them. As we start here, we don't have a familiarity of the customs and rituals that were in the law, more than likely. Even if we go and we go read the stuff in the books of the law, there are so many things there that, honestly, if you're like me, while you read those laws and customs, your eyes probably gloss over, right? You're not sure exactly what is happening here. What, you know, what do they have to do? And, and which ones did they actually do? And which ones weren't they supposed to do? All these kind of things. Uh, many of these rules are, are like trying to understand another language for us because we just don't live in their world, right? We, we just don't have their operating system. For the Hebrew people, being ceremonially or ritually unclean was a significant, significant concern. When a woman gave birth, they were considered to be unclean for seven days after the birth of a son. And then for an additional 33 days after that, the woman was to keep away from holy things. So for 40 days, they were considered to be ritually unclean. And so at the end of this, the mother was then to offer a lamb plus a dove or a pigeon. Now, your eyes may have just darted to the screen to double-check the passage we're looking at, because in this passage, you don't mention, or it doesn't mention, a lamb. Well, that's because there was another option in these laws for those who were poor. If you were poor and could not afford a lamb and didn't have a lamb, you could present two doves or two pigeons. And this is how we know that Mary and Joseph were not particularly well off, and that Jesus came to earth in humble estate. They didn't even have what was needed for the normal sacrifice. They had to use the other option. Now, I've mentioned already that they are fulfilling all that was required of them and showing us that all the way to the beginning of his life, the law was being kept on Jesus' behalf. But the question that naturally comes to our mind is, what is going on here? Why is this being done? Well, in the law of Moses, it said that every child was to be set apart to the Lord, the firstborn child. They were a gift from him, and they were to be offered back to God. But all these kids weren't raised in the temple. The, we read about them starting to build the, rebuild the temple there in Ezra in our public reading of Scripture, 
they didn't build a dormitory afterwards to house all the kids that were being given to the Lord. That, that's not what happened. So what happened there is that they would present their firstborn sons, and then they offered these sacrifices to not only cleanse those who were unclean, but to offer a substitute for the child. They were redeeming their child back to themselves. And with all of this being done, the big, big picture being painted for us here is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he, and he belongs to God in that way. But we also see that he is also fulfilling all of the earthly requirements. He belongs to God because the law has been kept and has been offered to him. And we've been told multiple times here who Jesus is. We understand what he has come to do from what we've seen so far in Luke, but everything now that is being required is taking place, but other people are going to testify to who Jesus is. And so as we move on to our second point, we find that the faithful actions of Mary and Joseph initiate others to testify to who Jesus is. And so the ones who testify to this are one-off characters in Scripture. Yet we know who they are for their faithful testimony to the identity of Jesus. They're, They're not mentioned again. They come out of nowhere, and we don't hear of them ever again. The first person we're introduced to is a man named Simeon. And we see that he was righteous and devout, and we also see that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this is more than just the idea of, of Israel being consoled and made to, made to feel better. When we read that, we think, oh, he's waiting for Israel to feel better. But actually, the consolation of Israel is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. It's about the peace and the comfort that the work and ministry of the Messiah brings. The Messiah is the one who comforts the oppressed and those who are downtrodden. And Simeon has been waiting for him. And we see that the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Now, we don't know how this prophetic word was received by Simeon, but he believed it. He trusted it. He believed the promise of God. And as the passage continues, we see that he comes into the temple and the Spirit reveals to him who this child is. Now, this is another moment where if you imagine the story, you might struggle with it a little to picture how this happens in your mind. To put it in a way that we might be able to visualize, imagine that we're baptizing a baby, and after I hand the little one back to the parents, someone just comes up randomly takes the baby from the parents and starts talking about them, holds them up for everybody to see. This had to be an interesting experience if you were there. We would wonder, what is going on? But despite how strange the situation might seem to us, the words of Simeon are beautiful. Now let your servant depart in peace. Think about the faith that Simeon is displaying in that statement. He is trusting that this child is the one who will save him from his sins. Remember, the, the work of Jesus is still at the cross is still to come. It hasn't been finished yet. The cross is still a long ways off. But he still trusts that this child, 
whose parents can't even bring a lamb for the ceremonial sacrifice, is going to bring salvation. Now, many of us have probably held a child in our arms and thought about what they would do when they become full-grown. Oh, I bet you'll be a piano player like your grandma or something like that. But it was just a hope. It's just a hope when we do that. We don't know what the child will actually be. But Simeon believes so deeply who this child is that he can now die peacefully, knowing that God is bringing salvation through this child. Simeon knows. He knows that he's seeing the salvation of God. This baby can't even feed himself. He can't speak. He can't walk. He can't do anything, really. And yet Simeon is banking on the word of God that has been proclaimed to him. He is betting all the chips on this baby. That's faith. He's willing to depart in peace by seeing a baby. He believes the promises of God. But I know what I'd probably be doing. Uh, God, this is it. This, this, this is the plan. I know, you, I know you said I wouldn't die until I saw the Messiah, but, but can you let me live, you know, like until he's actually going to do something? Can I see more than just this? Can I see what he's going to do? You've let me live this long. What's an extra 30 years, God? Can't I see what he's going to do? You gave old Methuselah hundreds upon hundreds of years. Can't I have 30 more? Can't you spot me an extra few so I can see more than, than this? But Simeon displays great faith for us. He shows us what believing and trusting in God looks like. It looks back to the promises made, and it trusts those promises into the future, even when it might be difficult for us to see them and to understand them. And this confession by Simeon is more than just an excellent example of faith to us. It's also an additional confirmation of who Jesus is. I've said several times over the last several weeks, we see clearly here in Luke that the Messiah is not an enlightened sage or a wise guru who is going to be coming to deliver good advice. He's a Savior. And this time we see just how amazing his work as Savior is going to be because as we read here, it says that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is what it means when it says here that this is going to happen in the presence of all peoples. The idea here is that this salvation is not going to be limited to the people of Israel, but it's going to go out to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now remember what I've said in the past. What has been the difference between the Hebrew people and their pagan neighbors? It isn't that they've figured out God or that they're smarter than the nations around them. It is that God has revealed himself to them. He has spoken to them through his word. And now Simeon foretells the truth that through this child, God is revealing himself to the Gentiles. Before, they had no revelation. They had no word. But now the light has come, not just for this one people group residing in Israel, but for all people. 
And Simeon is letting us know that this salvation that will come through this Christ child is going out into the world, out to the people of the world, in such a way, this creating act of his word going out as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, it goes so far as to come to Edgerton, Minnesota in the 21st century. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, it has brought that salvation that Simeon is proclaiming to you and I across time, across boundaries, across oceans, across ethnicities, so that God might be glorified for saving a people for himself. And this promise is revealed in Scripture and to the humble and patient Simeon. And then we see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that the parents of the child marvel and at what is said. And so Simeon blesses them and he tells Mary that Jesus will call many to, cause many to rise and fall in Israel. In other words, what, what Simeon, is, Simeon is saying is that those in high positions will be brought low and those who are lowly will be lifted up because there is a great reversal anticipated here. Things are going to be flipped upside down. Jesus did not come to bring greater benefit to those who were already at the top. Instead, he came to give hope to those who were without hope. And this is not just about money and power. It's about the way that those who in humility acknowledge their sin and unbelief, and then they believe that their only help is a radical rescue by God himself. It's about salvation that comes not through our own effort, but realizing that salvation through Christ is all we've got. And we see that that this is not going to come easily. The sign of the Messiah, we read, is opposed. And a sword pierces through Mary's own soul. Now we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Because we know from the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah is opposed. The Messiah suffers And we know from knowing the whole story what Mary is going to experience. She is made aware here in advance by Simeon that she is going to see something awful. She is going to suffer at the sight of her own son being crucified. But Simeon is not the only witness to the truth of the Messiah that we see here. Even though prophetic voices were rare in this time, we find Anna, who is a prophetess. She had been a widow for a great many years, and after her husband had died, she had devoted herself to worshiping and prayer and fasting. And for her great time of faithfulness, God revealed to her as well the identity of the child. And this caused her to tell others who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. There were others who, like her and Simeon, trusted that the promises of God would be fulfilled. And so she went about giving them the good news that the Messiah is here. He has arrived. God blessed her lifetime of faithfulness with seeing the Messiah, and she did not keep silent about it. She shared the good news of his arrival with others. And as we close out this passage, we see the continuing story. While we won't dwell too long on this final point today, it is an important part of the story. For all the celebration of this child, as I mentioned previously, it's not just the arrival of a baby 
that sets people free from their sin. Well, Anna and Simeon rejoice at seeing the child and know it to be the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. The promise does not fully come just by his arrival. But remember where he was born. It was among the animals, and he was laid in a manger. It was not at the palace, and he was not seen by the rulers of the world as one who will eventually sit on a throne. Here is the child who is going to be the king. That's not how it happened. He is born a king, yes, but he's not an earthly king with political power and with political influence. He's just a baby, and his family is so poor that they can't bring the lamb for the sacrifice. While part of the promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, we know there is substantially more to come. And Luke lets us know that everything is being done by the book. No one can say that Jesus didn't have done to him what was required by the law. While he is fully God, this does not exclude him from keeping the requirements of the law. For he is also fully man, and he came to fulfill the requirements that his parents kept on his behalf. All things that are happening here are proceeding as they should. That's what Luke is telling us. But after what we've read so far, we, we've heard about the miraculous conception of Jesus. We've heard about his humble birth, the, the angelic announcement by the shepherds. And now these two prophets recognizing him. But then the story gets, story gets really boring for a very long time. Because we don't know much of anything about this period of the life of Jesus. It's just a normal life. We will see a, a story from when he's 12 next week, but, but otherwise, until from this, from this time, until his ministry begins, he's just living life in some backwater part of the Middle East, in Nazareth, in Galilee. He learns to walk, he learns to talk. I'm sure he helped his mother and father as the son of a poor family. He certainly played with friends and just lived like people do. And isn't that really the point? Isn't that the point of what Luke is driving home here to us? While this passage has those elements of amazing prophetic words, we still see that after he was circumcised, they went to the temple and did things that normal families do. Sure, two prophetic voices said he was something more, but he was a human baby who they saw and touched. He cried. He needed to be fed. He has come in our very own flesh as the rescuer who saves us from the curse that afflicts us. But in the midst of this normalcy, we see that he became strong and filled with wisdom. He is growing, and he's becoming the one who we are going to learn from and the one who will teach with authority and put fear in the religious establishment. And the passage closes up with the statement that the favor of God was upon him. He grows in strength and wisdom. But that could be described towards any child, right? We all grow as we make laps around the sun. Every year, children grow. They become more wise. But there's something more 
with the growth of Jesus. Luke tells us that the favor and blessing of God is upon him. Just as the angels and Simeon and Anna let us know, Jesus is different. He is the Messiah, and the hand of God is upon him to accomplish salvation for the people of God. And so as we come to the end of this passage, I think there is one very applicable application that you and I can take from this story that tells of the faithfulness of Anna and Simeon. What a blessed example you and I have in these two people on how to live a godly life. And so I want us to consider one aspect of their faithfulness that is so applicable to you and I. Like Anna and Simeon, we are called to wait patiently for the promise of God. Think about how these two people are described to us. They have lived long and faithful lives in service to God. And even after they have seen the promise with their own eyes, they still wait patiently. Now we don't know for sure, but it's unlikely that these two lived another 30 years to witness the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Yet they still waited patiently. They waited patiently for his arrival, and they continued to wait patiently for the promise of God, even if it went beyond their years. They trusted not only that the promise of God would come, but that God would continue to be faithful until the ultimate consummation of his promise. In a sense, this is what we do in the sacraments, right? In baptism, we put the covenant sign on our children knowing that God has been faithful to us and we trust that he will continue to be faithful to his promise in the years to come. And this morning, don't we also trust the promise that has come and look to the promise to be fulfilled as we partake in the Lord's Supper? We look backwards to the finished work of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but we, we also trust that this is merely a foretaste of when we will feast in the house of Zion. And so may we approach the table with the faith and with the hope of Simeon and Anna today, trusting that God's promise has been fulfilled in Christ, and that one day we will see the promise fully fulfilled when Christ returns at the end of history, when he delivers his kingdom to his Father. And so may our lives reflect what we do here today, looking back to the promises of God and how he has been faithful and has fulfilled them. And may we live hopefully trusting that he will continue to fulfill his promises because we know that he is a great and covenant-keeping God. Amen.